Good morning and welcome to New Mexico People, Places and Ideas. I'm Stephen Spitz. On today's show, the power of the Mexican drug cartels is on the rise. Fentanyl is pouring into the U.S. and ordinary Mexicans face an increased risk of being murdered, kidnapped and extorted. Where is Mexico headed and what can be done? We'll ask Michael V. Hill, a former undercover DEA agent in Mexico who rose to be chief of international operations. Michael V. Hill, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Stephen. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on your program. Well, listen, Michael, I'm really eager for your take on all this, but have to start with what your time was like as an undercover DEA agent, because frankly, I can't imagine doing that. Well, it was the ultimate uh, game of cat and mouse. And when I graduated from the special uh, agent training in Washington, D.C., my first post of duty was here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I was sent into the mouth of the lobo, so to speak, to penetrate very large criminal uh, organizations in New Mexico and other states, for example, in Colorado. And then I graduated to a higher level, working against major cartels in Mexico, Colombia. And I would go into the mountainous regions as well as into the jungles without the benefit of uh, any backup to negotiate with these uh, drug traffickers. And I was very good at it because I was very calm in my demeanor. I didn't show nervousness because when you deal with these drug traffickers, you know, even a bead of sweat on your brow could uh, cause you to get killed. So is it common not to have backup? I mean, that sounds really dangerous. Normally you do when, when you operate in New Mexico or, you know, uh, different uh, states in, uh, here in, the, in America. But when you work abroad, sometimes you have to go into these areas. And I was probably one of the few or maybe the only one that did it. Most people uh, would, you know, prefer a backup and, or not do it at all. But uh, I looked at it as a way to really ingrain myself with a lot of these uh, organizations. And they trusted me more because I would go into these areas. And they knew that law enforcement would not do that because they, they would play it safe. And uh, many times I didn't play it safe. So I was able to make very large seizures, make a significant arrest. And uh, I uh, kind of enjoyed that, you know, that, that situation because it's the ultimate high in terms of adrenaline. But Stephen, as an undercover agent, you have to learn how to curb that because you, know, you can get addicted to, to that adrenaline rush and you start to take more risk, which uh, could cause your death. So I looked you up and you have all kinds of accolades and you know, I could mention a lot of them, but the one that really jumped out at me was you actually have a narco corrido about you. And just for the audience, what exactly is a narco corrido? A narco corrido is a uh, ballad that is made about drug trafficking. And, you know, it's a genre that has become very popular in Mexico and then also here in the United States. In Mexico, you have a lot of uh, groups, you know, like the uh, Tigres del Norte, the Tucanes de Tijuana, and uh, they made a fortune, you know, doing that narco ballads. Usually what they are is they talk about, you know, major drug lords, you know, like Chapo Guzman, 
uh, Ismael Mayo Sambada, you know, and they, and they make ballads about them. And uh, a lot of people like them because they look at a lot of these drug traffickers as coming from poverty and then, you know, uh, becoming wealthy through the drug trade. So we're, we're going to play a little clip of the Narco Clarito about you, and then I'm going to ask you to uh, summarize what it says. De un hombre muy apamado, señores, que se vistiera de gloria. Y fue el 14 de abril, señores, de su hermana el mismo día. Okay, Michael, can you can you summarize a bit of that Clarito for us? Well, it talks about, you know, it, it gives my birthday, you know, which is uh, 1950. And then uh, it says, you know, I'm going to tell you uh, the history of, of a very famous man, you know, uh, that, you know, he goes on to talk about, you know, my penetration of uh, drug trafficking organizations. So it uh, talks uh, a lot about my history. And the song is sung by a very famous uh, singer in Mexico by the name of uh, Angel and Cuervo. Yeah, he is very famous. So Michael, we've been talking about cartels as if they're sort of a static thing. And actually they've, uh, they've changed and the Mexican government's response to them has changed. So I wonder if you could give us just a little brief history of sort of the change in the Mexican drug cartels. Yes, in, in 1980, Stephen, there was only one cartel that was the Guadalajara cartel. And they basically trafficked initially, uh, you know, marijuana and heroin. And the Colombian uh, organizations like the Medellin cartel headed by Pablo Escobar and the Cali cartel were moving tons of cocaine through the Caribbean. But the U.S. government started to really pound them and make uh, a lot of seizures. So they decided to look at an alternate route and they looked at Mexico because the Mexican drug traffickers already had established pipelines coming into the United States. And they had commonality of language. So they shifted into Mexico, reached an agreement with the, uh, the Mexicans. And they started to funnel drugs into uh, Mexico and then into the United States. And that really put the Mexican uh, cartels into power. Uh, in 1985, the Guadalajara cartel, as you well know, Stephen kidnapped one of our agents, Enrique Kiki Camarena, tortured, killed him. And we started to go after him with a vengeance, like an avenging win. And we captured the... Uh, Initially, two of the leaders, Ernesto Fonseca Carrillo, Rafael Caro Quintero, and then in 1989, Miguel Angel Feliz Gallardo, who was the ultimate leader, and the cartel fractured. And at that time, you know, when they formed the Sinaloa cartel, headed by Chapo Guzman and others, the Tijuana cartel, headed by the Adriano Feliz brothers, and then the uh, Juarez cartel, headed by Amado Carrillo Fuentes. So they started to deal now, you know, cocaine, heroin, and marijuana. And then we had the opioid epidemic here in the United States, which started with uh, legitimate pharmaceutical drugs. Then it shifted in 2010 into heroin primarily. And then in 2013, we saw the deadliest drug and one that fueled the greatest crises here in the United States, 
fentanyl. So the cartel started to move into synthetic drugs, fentanyl, uh, methamphetamine, and they started to import uh, large quantities of precursor chemicals from China through the seaports of Lázaro Cárdenas in Michoacán, Manzanillo in the state of Colima, and then Veracruz in the state of Veracruz. So they mixed these things, uh, you know, in, you know, just uh, metal tubs with a shovel or a wooden paddle, and then they tablet it, you know, as though it was... Uh, you know, drugs like uh, Percocet, Xanax, or, you know, uh, oxycodone. And then the cartels have also diversified their criminal portfolio, Stephen. Now they're into illegal mining, uh, the theft of uh, lumber. They penetrated the avocado industry, which is a $3.5 billion industry in Mexico. Citrus fruit, which is $3 million, uh, billion also, like lemons, limes. They, they penetrated the, the fishing industry. And then Mexico has six petroleum refineries. And what they've done is they've started to steal petroleum to the tune of a billion dollars a year from uh, the uh, Pemex pipelines. Uh, they also engage in undocumented uh, 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 migrant smuggling. Uh, they also, uh, you know, deal with extortion, you know, murder for hire, kidnapping. So that makes them even more resilient to law enforcement efforts. And the two primary uh, cartels in, in Mexico are the Sinaloa cartel. Uh, you know, as you well know, Chapo Guzman was arrested and then extradited. He's currently serving a life uh, sentence in, at the, the Supermax in Florence, Colorado. And then the Jalisco New Generation Cartel that is headed by Nemesio Segueda Cervantes. And this guy is a murderous cartel leader that, you know, basically controls a, a paramilitary group that run around with uh, military grade uh, weapons such as, you know, 50 caliber machine guns. And they actually knocked down a Mexican uh, military helicopter with a rocket propelled grenade. Well, thank you. Thank you for that summary. And I want to come back now and, and ask you about the Mexican government's response to these changes in evolution in the cartels. But let me first mention that if you've just tuned in, this is New Mexico People, Places and Ideas. My name is Stephen Spitz, and I'm very pleased to be talking today with a former undercover DEA agent. He was in undercover in Mexico, Colombia, other Latin American countries. And he's also the author of many books, including his memoir, Deal, and his name is Michael V. Hill. And Michael, the, the first big response of the government, as I understand it, uh, was the Calderon uh, administration. And I think that was 2006 to 2012. And what was that response? When Felipe Calderon came in, and you're absolutely right, Stephen, that you know things started to change. And one of the first things that he did is he started to militarize, you know, uh, the anti-drug effort in Mexico, you know, started to use the, uh, the Mexican Marines who have done really a great job. And he initially sent 6,500 6, uh, soldiers into his home state of uh, Michoacan to combat the drug trafficking organizations. And he started what was called the Kingpin Strategy, and that was to go in 
and basically capture or kill the leaders of the uh, cartels. And he did a good job with that. But what he didn't foresee is that the cartels would fragment when you it's kill like when the you leaders. knock these guys off, they split apart, right? That's correct. It was like the uh, proverbial Greek uh, hydra that, you know, you cut off a head and two more take its place. So they started to fight for territory. They, you know, became uh, more violent. They started to fight against each other for uh, control of uh, drug routes into the United States and what have you. So that fueled a lot of uh, violence. Meantime, the United States government and Mexico created what they call Plan uh, Merida, which gave them billions of dollars, you know, to buy uh, equipment such as aircraft, helicopters, you know, provide training, and then also for the uh, development of intelligence, if you uh, will. So that uh, caused a, a lot of deaths in in uh, in uh, Mexico. Yeah, I, I and, read that homicides increased twofold. I mean, it, it, the the strategy essentially backfired. Well, the the strategy somewhat backfired. And, and the thing is that, you know, all of a sudden we started to see about 35,000 homicides occurring in, in Mexico. And those were the ones that were being reported because Mexico then became what I would consider to be pockmarked with unmarked cemeteries, you know, where they were conducting uh, massacres. And then you had, you know, like the uh, setas that were part of the Gulf Cartel and then broke off when the leader, Osiel Cardenas, was arrested and extradited to the United States. And these guys took violence, Stephen, to a new high level because they started to do beheadings, dismemberments. Some horrible stuff. Yes, and I, I remember on one occasion, they piled like 40 torsos, you know, just torsos, you know, into a small mountain on the outskirts of one of the Mexican cities. So they became uh, extremely brutal. And, uh, you know, it just uh, caused a, a major, major uh, problem in uh, Mexico. But now we have Lopez Obrador. And yeah, I'll he completely, very... he changes it completely, right? He says, I mean, he's right. Homicides are at an all-time high level. He's worried about the police and the military being corrupt. And he says, uh, hugs, not bullets. But how did that work out? Well, that worked out even worse because because what what happened is when he came into the presidency, he said, I'm going to put the military back in the barracks where they belong. And then he took a non-confrontational attitude, which is abrazos, y no balazos, hugs, and not gunshots. So that created a worse situation because the cartels then started to operate with greater impunity and with absolutely no respect for the rule of law. And I will tell you this, Stephen, that the Lopez Obrador administration will be the bloodiest. It probably already is, and he has two more years to go in his term, which is a six-year term. So he has created a, a horrific situation, and he is a pretty much an authoritarian president and he will never change that strategy, and he knows it's not uh, working. I mean, what 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 I read, that, and this was really what why I wanted to do the show. I mean, it's now the case that ordinary Mexicans, like an ordinary small business guy, I mean, he's in danger of being kidnapped. He's in danger of being extorted. 
uh, people are being bystanders are just aimlessly killed. I mean, I'm even worried about my friends who drive back and forth uh, from New Mexico to to Mexico with American plates. I mean, it, it just seems totally frightening, the situation. It is very frightening. And uh, like you, Stephen, a lot of people ask me, you know, do you, do you think I should go to Mexico? And I tell them, no, you know, a lot of times they disregard my uh, warnings. But going into Mexico is very dangerous because, you know, the cartels now control large swaths of territory and they're actually fighting for control of many states. Most, a lot of these cartels operate in, uh, you know, probably all 32 Mexican states. And then you have the Sinaloa cartel that operates in six of the seven continents in the world. They don't operate in Antarctica because uh, the penguins don't have money to, to buy drugs. What I'd like to turn to next, Michael, is what the U.S. can do and what the U.S. has done. But let me first mention that if you've just tuned in, this is New Mexico People, Places and Idea. I'm talking to Michael V. Hill, who was an undercover DEA agent in Mexico, Colombia, and other countries. He's written a memoir called Deal and Michael. Right now, there's a big political issue about a border wall. There are uh, people saying that one way to stop fentanyl from pouring into this country is finish the border wall that President Trump started. So I, I'd just like to start getting with your uh, reaction to that. Does it, does it make sense to you? No, it doesn't. Uh, the, the, the border wall is nothing more than a monument to ignorance. The, the border wall does not stop anything, Stephen, because most of the uh, drugs come in through the legitimate ports of entry, especially San Diego, Tijuana, that corridor, because the cartels need to move very large quantities of drugs to satisfy the U.S. market. The other thing that they don't take into consideration that the U.S.-Mexico border, which is uh, close to 2,000 miles long, is riddled with tunnels. If you took a giant knife and you cut through it, it would look like a block of Swiss cheese. Well, I'd like to I'd like to turn next to what the DEA, because the DEA has continued to uh, work in New Mexico, continue to build cases, and there are these two very recent cases that the DEA has brought, one against uh, General Cienfuegos and the other against uh, Garcia Luna. And the first one I'd like to ask you about is Cienfuegos, because it's, I, I think it really shows the limits of what the DEA can do and what the United States can accomplish. And do you want to just summarize what the case was against Cienfuegos? Yes, General uh, Salvador Cienfuegos was actually the former Minister of Defense under the Peña Nieto uh, administration. So that's as high as it gets in the military, right? Uh, absolutely, okay. absolutely. So he was uh, colluding with a cartel known as H2H2, which was part of the uh, Beltran Leyva organization. And he was accused of uh, money laundering. He was, uh, the investigation on him started in 2015 and then in 2020, he was arrested coming in to California at, at the uh, LAX airport. Apparently, he was taking his family to Disneyland. And uh, shortly after he was arrested, the Mexican government started to petition for his return. 
And this was under the uh, Trump administration. It was right Mark before the election, right? It was right before the November 2020 election. And Trump was under a lot of pressure in this situation. Well, exactly. And Marcelo Ebrard, who's the foreign minister for the Mexican government, approached Bill Barr, who was the attorney general. And he told him, look, he said, if you don't return him, you know, uh, we're, we're basically uh, going to break off uh, you know, bilateral relationships in terms of, uh, you know, uh, fighting uh, or combating drugs. And so, also, I think I think you really have to talk about uh, if AMLO, uh, Lopez Obrador, wanted to relax his security on the southern border, his southern border, or relax security on the U.S.'s southern border, all of a sudden, unlawful immigration would be which is an unbelievably hot political issue in 2020 and continues to be, all of a sudden it would be overwhelming again, right? That's correct. And I, I think that Bill Barr and, and Donald Trump uh, discussed it. And, and uh, Lopez Obrador was actually, you know, stopping the migrants in Mexico. So they actually, more so than anything else, did it as a favor to Lopez Obrador for that specific uh, reason. But I mean, it was, was transactional, right? It was, one, one it, was, it, was, it was it was transactional. You're absolutely yeah. right. But still, you know, what happened is Lopez Obrador had heartburn with the uh, DEA. And, and then he uh, accused us of uh, fabricating the evidence. And when they when uh, uh, Cienfuegos was, was returned to Mexico, there was an agreement that Mexico would Im investigate him and, and what have you. They didn't do any of the sort. And they just released them. And then what they did is they imposed restrictions on DEA, FBI, and other U.S. Uh, federal agencies that work in Mexico. They limited, they took away our diplomatic immunity. They basically uh, restricted uh, our activities to just passing information to the uh, Mexican authorities. And so they have res restricted uh, our activities and right now, you know, we have tremendous limitations in what we can do in Mexico. So I'd like to just briefly talk about the second case, because that's a, a jury verdict that just came in uh, in the Garcia Luna case. And Garcia Luna was, uh, I mean, if, if uh, Cienfuegos was the highest guy in the military, Garcia Luna was the highest guy in the police. He was, he was essentially uh, what we would call head of the FBI. He formed the federal police. And he's just been convicted of uh, criminal enterprises while he was doing this. And it, but in this case, he was favoring the exact opposite cartels. He was favoring uh, Sinaloa and going after Sinaloa's opponents, the opposite of what Cienfuegos was doing. So, so what do you make of, of that verdict? Well, the thing is that I looked at the uh, the case against. Um, Hernando Garcia Luna, and I work with him when he was head of the Federal Investigative Agency under the Vicente Fox uh, uh, administration, later became the secretary, a cabinet level secretary in charge of public security. And like you said, he was the, the head under Calderon, of the, right? He was under, 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 un, under Felipe Calderon from yeah. uh, 2006 to 2012. And he was accused of uh, multiple charges. But the most severe one was continuing criminal enterprise, which carries a minimum sentence of 20 years and a maximum sentence of uh, life imprisonment. I looked at the evidence that was presented 
And it was very eclectic in nature because uh, primarily what the prosecution presented were a lot of uh, drug traffickers. And a lot of what they said, you know, really put my antenna up because it didn't make any sense. They had him meeting with uh, traffickers in public places, receiving millions of dollars in public places. And that didn't make any sense because he could have used suborn in this case. He was very well known throughout Mexico at that time. And then he was meeting with very well-known traffickers in, in public places. So there were things there and I didn't see any cooperation, you know, in terms of, you know, text messages, uh, email messages, audio, video, photographs, any of that. And, and uh, the traffickers, it was all independent. There was not two of them that said, yes, I was there and I saw this. So I looked at the evidence as uh, pretty much being uh, very weak. So listen, I, I, I saw that too in the, in the reporting on this case, that they, they thought it was a very arguable case. Uh, on the other hand, I, I also read that a lot of people thought uh, Garcia Luna was dirty for a long time. And he, he apparently somehow acquired millions of dollars in assets while being a public servant. But even so, in the uh, trial, you know, they didn't present a financial analysis. You know, okay, well, this is what money he was making. And th these are the assets that, that he uh, controlled. There was none of that. And the other thing, in, I worked in Mexico probably longer than any U.S. agent a total of about 13 years and then four years along the, uh, the Mexico-U.S. Uh, border. And in Mexico, one of the things that I always said, you know, the first few years that I worked there is that if they put Jesus Christ in charge of a federal law enforcement agency in Mexico, people would come out of the woodwork and have him tied or linked to every uh, cartel in Mexico. I want to circle back to where I started. Where's Mexico headed and what can we do? And just from what you've said, it seems to me that as long as there's high demand for drugs in the United States and high profits to be made from those drugs, and as long as there are low socioeconomic conditions in Mexico, the U.S. is going to have a drug problem and Mexico is going to be supplying them. And I, I don't really know if we can expect much change in that. Well, in terms of Mexico, Stephen, I don't think that the U.S. is going to be able to do a lot of that. You know, I know that they developed a bicentennial agreement, but that doesn't really have a lot of teeth. And I think that as long as Lopez Obrador is there and he's, he still has two more years to go, it's not going to change. He does not really want to work with the U.S. government in terms of combating uh, drug trafficking. And until we curb uh, our demand for these illegal drugs, if it's not Mexico, if it's not Colombia, it's going to be somebody else. So we really have to key on demand reduction. And I am a major proponent that we incorporate this into our school's curriculum so that we start educating our children at a very early age. And then also treatment. We have about 2 million citizens in the United States that are addicted to uh, drugs. And um, unfortunately, we don't have the resources to treat them. You know, we need to have treatment centers, many more treatment centers, treatment centers that are 
can be used by everybody, not just the people that have money for private uh, treatment. And uh, we also have to have harm reduction where we have to uh, provide addicts with, uh, uh, with naloxone, which reverses uh, overdose deaths. And then also test strips because the cartels now, Stephen, are mixing fentanyl with heroin with uh, marijuana, with cocaine, and two milligrams of fentanyl can be fatal to a, a normal human being. We are going to have to leave it there. I would like to thank today's guest, Michael B. Hill. He was an undercover DEA agent in Mexico and rose to be head of international operations for the DEA. Thanks also to my producers, Gus Tafoya and Tristan Klum. The executive producer of this show is Lynn Chebecki, and my name is Steven Spitz. You've been listening to New Mexico People, Places, and Ideas on KUNM. Podcasts of this show are available wherever you get podcasts. Search Steven Spitz. Archives of past shows are at stevenspitz.com. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.